All right, all right. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Other Life Podcast. We have an excellent episode prepared for you today. We are going to go deep into the John McAfee event. I don't even want to say death because do we really know that he died? Allegedly, we're, we're going to look into this. Hint, I personally do not think that John McAfee killed himself. I think that's very, very implausible, but we're going to examine the evidence. I'll make the case and, and we'll see what we're working with there. Very, very interesting story. We are also going to talk about some updates from the various things I've been reading and writing and working on. I am recently getting really into Ivan Illich because my friend Nina Power uh, came to me and she said she wanted to do a course on Ivan Illich. She feels that he's really of the moment and, and someone really important for people to be reading right now. And I never really read Ivan Illich in my time. So um, taking this as an opportunity to do so. And, and I'm going to help her launch a course on Ivan Illich, which is starting in July. So we're going to talk about um, this book in particular, The Rivers uh, the rivers North of the Future, which I've been reading. It's the first book of Illich that I've, I've personally read. So uh, he's got some really, really interesting uh, theoretical positions, which I want to summarize for you and explain why I think they're really cool. And then we're going to also talk a little bit about the life DAO that I am slowly experimentally building, the decentralized autonomous organization version of the Other Life Project. So many of you who have been following me for a long time know that we have our own uh, ERC-20 token on Ethereum. It's called Life, money sign, life is the ticker. And uh, it's real. There's a max supply of 10 million life coin. And... I'm now circulating it to people who have been very valuable in the community in the past. And we actually have put most of it into a multi-sig wallet, uh, the community treasury. And there's some other news I want to share with you. So it's just kind of, it's very interesting and cool. And I have some big ideas on what to do with it and what's coming next. So I just want to give you an update on all of that. It actually has a real market value now. It's on, you can find it on Uniswap. There's a life ETH pair. So I just want to explain what that means and, and, and what it's going to look like moving forward. So very interested in that. Very excited by that. And then last but not least, I want to also talk a little bit about this recent news coming out of China about how China looks like it's really seriously cracking down on Bitcoin miners. Basically, it looks like it's trying to stop mining in China. And I actually think from a political perspective, this is very interesting. I, I actually think political theory is actually relatively underutilized when it comes to thinking about um, Bitcoin and, and the cryptocurrency space in general. Mostly people think about it through the lens of economics or finance, but I actually think political science and political theory, my bread and butter, actually has a whole lot to say about what is going on in the crypto world and what to expect moving forward. And so that's, I think, increasingly a, a, a point of research that I'm quite interested in focusing on and, and maybe thinking about aloud with you all. So I want to talk a little bit about what that looks like to me from the political science perspective. I actually think it's really good news, frankly, if you're interested in you know um, America and you like America. I think actually China cracking down on Bitcoin mining is actually a, a really amazing opportunity for America. So I want to just explain what I mean by all of that. So those are pretty much the, the four topics we're going to cover today. Other Life Podcast, John McAfee, the Other Life DAO, and the Life Cryptocurrency. We're going to talk about Ivan Illich, the based Roman Catholic priest and social theorist. And then we're going to talk also about Bitcoin mining in China and what that means. So that's basically a summary of the show. Real quick before we get into it, I got to ask you, please do subscribe to the channel if you're not already subscribed. I know a lot of you watch the show but aren't necessarily subscribed and also click the bell so you get notifications. And the only other thing I want to ask is if you're not subscribed to the podcast itself, like on your podcast app, please go ahead and do that. I'm really trying to grow the numbers uh, for the podcast. I'm paying Ben a legit salary now and I just really am focusing on trying to see real growth in uh, the subscriber numbers for the Other Life podcast. So 
get your phone out right now. Just look look up other life. Add the word Justin if, if you need to, if, if it doesn't show up automatically. And uh, please do subscribe. We're posting very consistently now, and I'm putting increasing effort into making these really interesting and hopefully fun uh, shows. And we also have guests coming on. I, I haven't had guests in, in a couple weeks, but um, I'm going to be making a big push to getting some really awesome guests. And we're going to be doing live shows like in person in uh, Austin. So for instance, actually, Razib Khan, who's been on the show before, really, really super smart dude and funny, funny guy, really, a guy I really like, um, he's become a friend of mine. I'm going to have him in the studio in person on uh, Monday. So there'll be more cool stuff coming out in person. So subscribe to the channel, subscribe to the podcast. We're really growing this out. And yeah, just thanks for thanks for being here. So real quick, the only other final thing before we get into the content, and by the way, I'm looking at the comments here. So um, you know, if people want to throw up some super chats or whatever, I will at least look at them. If they're not uh, terribly evil, I will probably mention them and maybe respond to them. But uh, real quick before we get into the content, just a brief word from our sponsor. The Other Life Podcast now has a sponsor. Uh, we are sponsored by IndieThinkers.org. IndieThinkers.org is the only membership community in the world that is dedicated specifically to independent intellectuals working outside of institutions. So there's an increasing number of this type of person, myself among them, and uh, we have particular needs and particular you know, uh, aspects to this type of independent intellectual work that most people don't understand. And so the community has been built. I founded it myself and helping to grow it with other people. It's, it's been developed specifically to support and assist and empower independent intellectuals working outside of institutions. So we do a bunch of things. We do uh, weekly writing sessions three times a week for four hours at a time. We meet as a group and we just turn our mics off and we get to work on the work that's most important to us. Just a way of basically making ourselves do more focused work than you would do otherwise. We do monthly conferences once a month where we share our work and discuss what we're doing, strategize, meet new people, and uh, you find collaborators and things like that. There's a private forum, which is really quite active. And we also have a content library of all kinds of instructional material on building a platform and all the kinds of things you need to do nowadays to navigate this like new world of uh, the independent intellectual life successfully. So yeah, very proud of it. Very awesome. I'm an active member myself and I benefit from it myself. So I wouldn't endorse it if I didn't truly believe in it. Indiethinkers.org, you can check the link in the show notes and re request an invitation if that sounds like something, uh, you know, if that sounds like you. All right. So that's all I got for the uh, preliminaries here. Let's get right into the show then, shall we? So uh, the first thing I want to talk about is let's start with this topic of of the the Bitcoin mining topic in China. So what you're seeing coming out of the news that just this week is that China looks like it's actually making now a concerted effort to eliminate the mining of Bitcoin in China. And the first thing to note about this is that it's actually kind of surprising. Like this is not what many people were expecting. You know, if you think about Peter Thiel, who a few weeks ago actually was in the news for saying that he feared, you know, Bitcoin was a kind of uh, you know, China PSYOP and the United States should be very wary about that. That actually seems to be not true. I think I think a lot of people had that intuition that China was, you know, kind of um, ahead of the United States and it's kind of Bitcoin uh, strategic thinking. And I think actually what's what it's looking like now is is very different than what a lot of people thought. And it actually looks like now China is making a, a concerted strategic decision to uh, try to squelch Bitcoin mining in the country. Now, does that mean it's going to necessarily develop a kind of national strategy altogether against Bitcoin? Not necessarily. It could just mean that China doesn't want individuals in the country to be mining to be mining Bitcoin. Um, but perhaps you know China has different plans. Perhaps you know the the, the Chinese Communist Party has a has a different plan. Um, who knows? But it is very informative and very revealing to me that China is cracking down on Bitcoin miners. And here's where I think a political science perspective can actually shed some light because 
you know, it's very popular today in the Western world, the high IQ rationalist people, many of whom I'm friends with, people really kind of admire China. People today in the West kind of look to China as, oh, they're so much smarter. They have higher IQ. They have a longer term thinking in the government. They're going to overtake the United States because they have this just more intelligent, more ambitious, more organized and coordinated national planning structure. That's a very, very popular perspective, I would say. I might even say among the kind of cosmopolitan, high IQ, rationalist types of people, that is actually almost a dominant perspective, I would say. Now, I tend to hang out with more kind of pro-American people. That's kind of more my my speed. I'm much more interested in uh, federal, you know, I, I actually think federalism and checks and balances and our kind of slow sclerotic kind of institutional structure is in many ways uh, superior because it forces individuals and communities to basically pick up the slack and and do things on their own. And I think in the long run, that actually does win. But that's very much informed by a political science perspective that I don't think a lot of people share. So I want to unpack this a little bit. The reason why China banning Bitcoin miners is actually not as surprising to me as it might be to other people is that one of the biggest lessons, I think, from the entire history of political science, one of the most well-documented and robust findings is that economic liberalization and political liberalization are highly correlated. And it looks like from the research that the causal arrow probably goes both ways. So if you think about the work of uh, Asimoglu and Robinson, for instance, these are two kind of uh, beasts in, 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 in this literature. Go through their work and, and see what I'm talking about. It just looks like there's very strong reason to believe that if you want political liberalization, you're going to set yourself up for greater kind of economic growth. And if you want economic growth and economic freedom, you're setting yourself up for political freedom as well, whether you want to or not. And so the people that are bullish on China being this kind of authoritarian planning structure that is, you know, higher IQ and more powerful and ambitious than the United States, the main thing they overlook is that it's not at all clear from the evidence. If you want to adopt an evidence-based, you know, mental model, it's not at all clear that China is going to be able to keep growing economically and also maintain authoritarian control. If you stick just to the data and what we know about how countries work through all of history, then you actually should believe that as, as China becomes more economically successful, it's also going to lose its grip on the authoritarian control. Or if it really chooses to retain its authoritarian control, it's going to probably see economic suffering. It's probably going to see decreased growth, and it's not going to be able to sustain the growth rates that it's currently famous for. So this is actually a somewhat contrarian view at this point, but in, in the political science literature, it's this is extremely well-documented, extremely robust statement that I'm making here. So the reason this is really interesting for analyzing what's going on with Bitcoin in China is that this is pretty much what the political science literature would predict, and yet people are quite surprised by it. Basically, the implication is, as far as I can see, is that of course China is going to clamp down on Bitcoin miners because China is structurally very concerned about a rising uncontrollable bourgeoisie. If you look at the history of, let's say, how like the English parliament comes about, the earliest formations of political liberalism as we know it, why did why did the king of England have to negotiate and distribute power to the parliament? It's basically because there was a rising bourgeois class. It's because they had growing economic power that changed the game theoretic balance, essentially, and made it out of the control of the king. So the king had to basically negotiate to retain any power whatsoever. This is the story time and time again. When you look at authoritarian structures trying to maintain control, if a certain number of the middle class grow rich, 
the game theory just breaks down for authoritarian control and the authoritarians have to kind of negotiate and distribute power through parliamentary systems or some kind of a distributed democratizing uh, institution of some kind. So again, this is an extremely robust dynamic that, that's found time and time again. And it makes a lot of sense. There's, it's just, I think it's pretty intuitive to understand the game theory and people have shown this formally as well, but it's just intuitive and doesn't require, um, you know, a lot of math for you to understand why that works out. I think, I think it's fairly obvious. And so the, you know, so it looks like basically now that, um, Bitcoin is really saying no mining allowed in China, it looks like China is going to choose authoritarian control over increased economic growth and, and economic prospects that would come from a large number of Chinese people mining Bitcoin. So this is actually really informative and, and revealing. And as I said, somewhat surprising, but not from the political science perspective. And frankly, I think this is really good news for America. A lot of people in America are so doomer pilled on China taking over and, you know, it's now like the, the very fashionable thing among high IQ people in the U.S. is uh, having your kids learn Mandarin, right? At getting a Chinese nanny when they're very young, uh, preparing them to submit to their new uh, global hegemons. And well, I have nothing against that. And maybe it's a good hedge. And it's just great to have kids who can speak multiple languages. This is a very doomer pilled perspective that I don't think is is really as warranted necessarily. I mean, I do think there's a good chance actually, <laughs> but uh, that 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 China does take over. But it's far from it's far from set in stone for this reason specifically that China will probably continue to choose authoritarian control over economic growth if it is forced to choose. And I think this is a really good test case. This is a really clear example of that where. It, China is showing that it really prefers authoritarian control over the risks of too much distributed economic growth or, you know, increased wealth and income among uh, the, the Chinese bourgeoisie, especially in this particularly kind of ungovernable uh, crypto space. All right. So I think it's bullish for America, frankly. And the final upshot here on this talking point that I want to talk about is basically that this is a great opportunity, I think, for the United States to go all in on crypto. I mean, if I was the president of the United States, I would be looking at this and I'd be thinking... Wow, so China's really pushing away Bitcoin. Let's let's go all in on Bitcoin, jack the markets basically and buy a whole bunch of Bitcoin, send Bitcoin to the moon but be the number one government that owns the most Bitcoin. I mean, if I were the if I were the president of the United States, I would do this. You know, I don't know if you could get away with that through an executive order, but I would do everything I could to organize that if I was a politician in the United States. I think it's a it's a it's a it's an obvious play. Now, the the drawback to this and the, probably the reason why currently American politicians aren't doing this is because they are going to lose a certain amount of monetary control. And there are vested interests that don't want that, of course. But if you're a more libertarian kind of politician and you kind of don't like the Fed anyway, and, and you, you're you kind of balance the budget kind of financial hawk, then I think you should be highly motivated to organize a coalition that basically says, let's buy a ton of Bitcoin, let's endorse it, let's support and subsidize Bitcoin mining in America. And because what would happen is it would so skyrocket the price of Bitcoin just by doing that, that it would basically be making, it would pretty much guarantee that the United States becomes the most powerful country in the world for the foreseeable future by endorsing and promoting Bitcoin. Not to mention, I mean, a lot of these politicians are pretty venal and self-interested, right? So you could actually motivate them in that way as well as by saying, you know, they're all, they all do insider trading and all this kind of stuff. You know, uh, if you look at like Nancy Pelosi, you know, like buying Tesla stock and then like boosting it or whatever, whatever they do, they all do this kind of thing, right? Um, I think you could actually leverage these, these venal self-interest among the politicians and say, all right, fine, go buy your own personal holdings of Bitcoin before you do this. So not only can you promote American 
hegemony into the long term, but you can also get rich doing it yourself. Fine. Who cares if that's if that's what it's going to take to motivate these venal, selfish, you know, corrupt politicians, then fine. Who cares? It'd be really good for America. And I think now is a really good time to do it precisely as China is backing away. So that's that's my that's my take there. I think China cracking down on Bitcoin miners is actually quite surprising. But political science has a lot to teach about that. And when you look at it from the, the political science perspective, it's not so surprising. And furthermore, I think it's actually really bullish for America, or at least it's a good opportunity for America to go all in on, on, on Bitcoin. So that's my take there. The next thing that I want to talk about is Ivan Illich, which is uh, Ivan Illich is a, a Roman Catholic priest who had his heyday mostly in the 70s. But he is, I think, very, very on point for today. Uh, the, his, his ideas are very unique, very independently produced. You can tell he's kind of just on his own line of flight. And I think as a Catholic priest, he really has this rather profound and very spiritually motivated, but nonetheless, very rational and uh, very intellectually sophisticated perspective that is just kind of off the map of, of, of left or right. It's, it's just this very independent, idiosyncratic worldview that I think a lot of people like Nina Power and people like David Cayley and even people like Charles Taylor, the the, the famous uh, philosopher and historian of ideas, believe now that Ivan Illich has this kind of profound uh, resurgence of importance. His ideas seem uniquely well fit to the problems of today. And so I started reading The Rivers North of the Future, this book here. I've never read any Ivan Illich, but um, since Nina Power wanted to do a course on him, and we're going to be doing a course that's launching in July. By the way, you can go to illichcourse.com, and uh, you can download the syllabus if you'd like. That's I-L-L-I-C-H course.com. Uh, we made like a 20-page study guide giving you a kind of logical sequence of readings if you want to explore his work on your own. And then we're going to be launching a course in July if you want to take a full eight-week seminar. In any event... Whenever I help other people do a course in my Indie Thinkers course system, I always, of course, want to get boned up on them. I just am curious. So I won't be teaching the course, but I started reading some of his books. And this book, The Rivers North of the Future, is pretty interesting because it's specifically about a very particular argument that Ivan Illich made over the course of his life. Uh, and the argument is there's a very famous Latin phrase that translates into something basically like, the corruption of the best is the worst. And what that means is that if something is crappy and it gets corrupted, that's not that big a deal, right? It was crappy to begin with. But if something is really, really good or really, really noble, particularly good or particularly noble, its corruption is particularly bad. The corrupted form leads to the greatest harm, even more so than the corruption of something that was already kind of crappy. So the intuition is quite simple. But Ivan Illich makes this argument on, on the grand scale of Western history, and he basically makes this argument about the church. So he himself was a, a, a Roman Catholic priest. But he was always kind of an oddball. He, he never really fit in. He never really took the party line. And he was actually throughout his life a, 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 pretty, a pretty harsh critic of the church. And he believed that, this is, that this, is a way, this is the way to truly love the church, that you have to have this kind of attitude. And I very much respect that. And I, I think especially for Christians today or Catholics today who look at you know, the Catholic church and see all these crazy problems and so much to dislike about it. I think Ivan Illich really gives you a really interesting—he's a really interesting role model for, for how to think about that because you can be absolutely scathing critic of the Catholic Church and still be a Catholic. And so he's a, he's a great example of that. And what he says, basically, the essence of his argument in this book, The Rivers North of the Future, is basically that the corruption of the best is the worst and that this is what happened with the Catholic Church. Because the Christian revelation was so profound and so good and, and so— significant and positive 
that when you build structures around that, which become corrupt, that corruption becomes equally bad in magnitude. The magnitude of its badness becomes equal to the goodness of the initial revelation. Something like that would be a way to formulate it. And so what he argues is that modernity is basically the perversion of Christianity. And it's a very interesting perspective that I think illuminates a lot of things, because if you think about how the current you know, popular debate or the popular cleavage around Christianity plays out, it's something like this. People will generally debate, oh, Christianity is impossible to sustain with modernity, or then other people will rebut them by saying, oh, no, all of modernity is thanks to Christianity. It's this kind of for or against pro-Christian or anti-Christian kind of perspective. And his perspective, Ivan Illich's perspective is very interesting and unique insofar as it's it's kind of dodging that and and creating this this kind of third view where everything about modernity is Christianity, but it's upside down or inverted or perverted Christianity in a way. And so specifically his argument is that the problem is the institutionalization. And so he's not a Protestant in the sense that he thinks you can't have institutions or it's this kind of pure personal relationship to God. He's he's not against the idea of institutionalizing things in general. He acknowledges that society will inevitably create institutions and needs institutions to some degree. But he points out that his unique argument is that the particular insight of the Christian revelation, what makes it so profound and true is and good, is uniquely resistant to institutionalization. And so if you try to institutionalize it, you end up introducing different lies and kind of twisted, uh, twisted, twisted, dishonest and harmful uh, tendencies, basically. And to make this argument, one of his famous examples that he that he goes back to the most is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And if you uh, remember this famous parable, parable, of course, it, it infiltrates contemporary culture and that we use this word today, we call someone a Good Samaritan if they're just, you know, a very altruistic, helpful person. But if you go back to that parable in the Gospels, Ivan Illich says that this is really, really illuminating because the way the story goes is this. There is a uh, poor guy walking down the street or, you know, walking down the dirt road, whatever they had back then. And uh, he's suffering badly. He has wounds uh, and he's just a kind of um, a, a helpless, wounded, suffering, in pain person who no one knows. He's, he's a foreigner. I, I, I forget if he had an ethnicity or, or what, but he's basically just a foreigner. And there are um, a few people around. One of them is a priest. All right. And I think one of them is a Jew. And then I think there's the Good Samaritan, something like that. I might be butchering this a little bit, but I, I, got, the, I got the gist of it correct, I'm sure. And the idea is that the, the wounded guy is walking down the road and the priest and the other guy are like ignoring him because back then what it meant to be ethical, what it meant to be decent was to look after your own. If it's in your group, whether that's your family or your community or your ethnic group or whatever, whatever was considered to be the in-group that was relevant, you take care of them. You'd be, you'd be compassionate towards people in your group, but you would never be compassionate to some random stranger. That was crazy. And in fact, back then before Christ, that was actually seen as weird and even unethical. It was seen as like perverse, basically like what's wrong with you? Why would you, why would you go take care of someone you don't even know? It's seen as, you know, foolish or, um, what are you showing off or what, what kind of weird, you know, crazy creative, energy are you are you harnessing by going off and just helping someone you don't even know it makes no sense it was foolish and actually seen as bad taste um 
And the Good Samaritan basically takes care of this wounded guy who's walking down the road uh, for no reason, no reason whatsoever, really. He doesn't know him. He doesn't have any reason to care about him. But the Good Samaritan just takes care of him. And what Illich says is that the church basically goes wrong by trying to institutionalize this altruism and making it making rules out of it, saying you have to do this, you have to do that, and trying to institutionalize this Christian ethics. What what Illich says is that the Good Samaritan who helps the wounded guy down the walking down the road is actually expressing a creative freedom. It's not a rule. He's not following a rule. He doesn't have to do that. And there exists no structure or obligation that says he should do that. There never was and there never will be. What's interesting and valuable and attractive about the Good Samaritan, according to Ivan Illich, is that there is a kind of irreducible existentialist freedom that we enjoy as human beings where we can, if we want to, do things for no reason whatsoever. And we sometimes feel called, we sometimes just feel inside of ourselves, that suffering person should be helped. I want to help him, even though I don't know him, even though it doesn't make any sense, even though maybe I can't even do anything. I feel called to help that person, even though I don't know him. It's ira- It's almost irrational. Maybe we would say extra rational. It's not necessarily irrational. It's just, it doesn't necessarily make sense. There's not really a good reason to do it. And yet we have the freedom to do it if we want to. And that's what Christianity is all about. It's that that irreducible existentialist freedom to love the other or to help the other. And Christians choose to do that because they choose to do that. It's free choice. That's what makes it remarkable. That's what makes it awesome and valuable. And that's the spirit that Christianity wants to promote and and spread and teach. And Ivan Illich is like, the church gets this completely wrong, kind of from day one, because the church is all about making this a rule and making feel people making people feel obligated that they have to act like this all the time. And Illich says once you once you start doing that, you're completely missing the boat. You're actually almost you're perverting it. You're you're kind of inverting the essence of it. The whole thing that makes it valuable is this is a, it's this absolutely free choice, a kind of creative or aesthetic expression that one does actually against the rules. At the time of the good Samaritan at the at in the context of that parable, the Good Samaritan was actually kind of doing something that the other people saw as indecent, as as breaking the norms. So in a way, it's it's free creative expression, an exercise of irreducible freedom, choosing to help the other just because one wants to, because you're able to, and because you don't care about what the rules are, actually. You're willing to break the rules or defy the norms and the rules just to be free and express your creative freedom because you feel like it, basically. That's what makes Christianity beautiful and true and good, according to Illich. And the the institutionalization of that is kind of precisely missing the point. It's, it's the exact opposite of what is really unique about the Christian spirit. Okay, so that's in a nutshell the argument that Ivan Illich is making on this idea, this larger theme he always returns to about how the corruption of the best is the worst. So really, really interesting, dude. I highly recommend this book. This book in particular is, is very fun to read because it's a testament. It's basically what that means is Ivan Illich always talked about this idea of the corruption of the best is the worst. And this guy, David Cayley, who's an author, and uh, he's actually a Canadian who does radio shows. And, and he, he's quite a—he's very intelligent, and I, I think he's something—I would call him a thinker and, uh, in, in his own right. He became— friends with Illich and and developed a relationship with the, with him. And David Cayley basically went to Illich and was like, hey, you know how you're always saying the corruption of the best is the worst? Can you explain that in more detail? Could you sit down with me? And this was, I think, towards the end of Ivan Illich's life. And basically, Ivan Illich just kind of explained this in detail um, to David Cayley. And David was kind of asking him questions and, and having him unpack it. So it's a fun book. It's a really good book. The foreword is by Charles Taylor, the absolute unit of 
you know, philosophy of kind of history of philosophy. So highly recommend it. All right. So, and yeah, if you want to go deeper on Ivan Illich, just go to illichcourse.com. That's I L L I C H course.com. We made a 20 page syllabus that basically gives you a kind of logical sequence of readings. If you want to cover his whole body of work, you can do that on your own. You just follow the, follow the study guide that we made. And if you want to join our eight week seminar with Nina power, that'll be starting in July. So yeah, go check that out. Uh, I put a link in the show notes so you can just click there if that's easier. All right. All right. So next, this is, I think, what everyone is here for. This is what everyone wants to know. Did John McAfee actually kill himself or what's going on with that? Well, if you know anything about the story of John McAfee, I think you're feeling pretty skeptical that this guy killed himself. This guy was a vitalist to the maximum. And everyone knows Other Life Podcast is all about vitalism. And so John McAfee is absolutely within the vitalist canon, without a doubt. Now, vitalism does lead to some excesses. Uh, I think, you know, McAfee was ethically problematic, let's say. Um, but vitalism is about, you know, the the embrace of, of, of the spirit of life itself, wherever one finds it. And yeah, that does lead to some excesses sometimes. So I'm not going to pass judgment at this at this time. But what I should probably do for people is give a bit of a background summary on ja on John McAfee's life. If you maybe you've never heard of him, you might be wondering what is this story all about? I suspect a lot of you do know, but I'll keep this brief just to a few minutes. Basically, John McAfee was the guy who created the eponymous famous antivirus software that you probably remember and probably had on your Windows computer back in the day. He made a fortune off that. Very smart dude. And then he basically booked it to Belize and uh, lived this kind of wild man's life. There's a really good documentary about him. I mean, if you're a fan of him, you probably think the documentary is very biased against him. If you are not a fan of him, you might watch the documentary and think this guy is terribly evil. It's definitely kind of critical, generally critical of him. But it is very, it's an absolutely fascinating watch. I highly recommend it. It was on Netflix for a while. I'm not sure. I don't even remember the title, but just Google it. You'll find it. Very worth watching, very entertaining and interesting. Anyway, the story you get from that is he basically made his fortune off the antivirus software, uh, booked it to Belize, and basically built up this very free compound where he was kind of the king. He was like the local king, basically. He organized around him a harem of women. He had uh, local bodyguards, local security, a beautiful home on the beach. And yeah, he's just a wild guy. He likes guns. He's a hardcore libertarian, very kind of anti-government, anti-taxes, pro-crypto, just a true kind of American vitalist and wild man. And he was intent on living out the maximum of his freedom you know, throughout his life. So he booked it to Belize and basically trouble follows this guy everywhere. And this is one of the problems with being this type of person. My hat's off to him and people who live to the maximum, but it does tend to bring uh, problems and difficulties and inconveniences. And so I forget the details, but basically he was always kind of on, he was always kind of on the run from one thing or another. I believe he had tax evasion accusations uh, that, that have been longstanding. But then also when he got to Belize and was like, building his compound. There were all kinds of accusations. He was getting into beef with the local police, with neighbors. In the movie, in the documentary, it alleges or suggests strongly that he actually killed his neighbor in Belize. And uh, pretty wild. Uh, the guy was kind of always getting into conflicts. And yeah, trouble, trouble kind of always followed him. But what the movie also shows is that once things kind of got a little too hot in Belize, you know, he, he had enough enemies and and things were kind of surrounding him, he eventually booked it to another country and actually kind of went on this wild road trip through Central America and South America. I forget where exactly. 
and was basically on the run, a legit fugitive. And there are crazy exploits, which I don't remember all of them, but crazy stories about him, like, you know, hiding from police. And uh, the, the stories are legendary. This guy was a true wild man. So, you know, definitely look them up, watch the movie if you're interested in this. But that's basically the short story. Um, you know, I definitely uh, brushed over many details and probably got a, a few of those details wrong. But that is generally the that is generally the, the basic plot line of his life. And the way that story kind of ends is that he eventually become he eventually runs for president of the United States while he was on while he was a fugitive. Absolutely bonkers. But uh, needless to say, he did not win. I think he ran with the Libertarian Party. And so basically, he's been on the run ever since. This was like a long time ago. I forgot how long this has been going on, but many, many years. And he's basically been on the run with his wife. His wife's name is Janice. Uh, by the way, funny little story. Um, I was actually in the middle of communications with Janice to have John McAfee on the podcast. It was going to happen. But uh, assuming that he is, in fact, dead, uh, I, I missed the boat on that one. Uh Rest in peace to, to John McAfee. I'm sorry I didn't get him on the podcast. Um, uh, sorry that didn't come together, John. But um, who knows? Maybe he'll reappear. Maybe this is all a grand stunt. The guy likes grand stunts. So, I mean, there's some probability above zero that he's not even dead at all and that he's going to reappear, uh, possibly. I mean, I wouldn't put a lot of money on that, but I would say there's a non-zero probability of that. So if that happens, I'll definitely get him on the podcast. Um, uh, he was going to – Janice was arranging it. Like, he had said yes. Uh, we were just fine. We we're waiting for the, to find the right time uh, in any event. So he basically has been on the run ever since. And he's just basically been bouncing around foreign countries with his wife, Janice, and his, his little entourage. Uh, you know, they like to have they like to show off their guns and photos on Instagram and on on nice boats and things like that. It's kind of his his lifestyle. And just recently, the news came out that he is dead. He was found dead in a in a Spanish prison. This is how the story goes anyway. And this was only a few days ago, and immediately afterwards, all this crazy stuff starts happening and starts coming out. Basically, here, let's review the evidence. First of all, his lawyer says that he did not seem like he was in any distress, did not seem like he was going to kill himself at all. His wife also says he was not in any distress, was not going to kill himself, did not seem like he was going to kill himself. In fact, the last, the last words he said to his wife was that, I'll call you later. And so... This does not sound like a man who wanted to kill himself. I see someone in the chat is saying that I'm skipping many interesting details. I'm sure that I am. If you have any that you want me to add, uh, write them thoughtfully and, and correctly in the chat, and I will read out some extra details of his life uh, if I'm missing anything particularly important. And so what else? Immediately after he dies, a post goes up on his Instagram account that just has the letter Q, okay? And then, and then the Instagram account is deleted. Weird, right? It's just, I mean, I don't... I mean, whatever theory you want, it's, that's just weird, right? There's got to there's something going on there. So, okay, what else? A, a lot of people have this theory that he had a dead man switch, and a dead man switch is just basically a kind of uh, technical infrastructure that is designed so that it automatically gets triggered when someone dies. And he claimed himself to have had one. He wrote in previous tweets in his life. He actually said, "I think the government might try to kill me." So. First of all, if I die by suicide, it was not a suicide. He literally said this, okay, uh, in advance. He even got a tattoo that says whacked, okay? That's why it says that on the screen here. Um, and he actually made an Ethereum token with the ticker whacked, money sign whacked with no E, and got it tattooed on his arm, literally saying, if I ever appear to be suicided, I was not, I did not kill myself. 
someone killed me. He literally said that in advance. Sorry, I'm laughing. I, I feel bad because it's uh, it's always it's always a terrible tragedy when anyone loses their life. So I don't mean to make light of it. It's just such a wild story. And so, okay, he's on record as having said, I will never kill myself if I get killed, if I die, and people claim it's a suicide, someone killed me, probably the government, he says. And because immediately after his death, these things were triggered, like the Q image on Instagram, but also there was money moving in and out of the whacked uh, address on Ethereum. People are thinking that he set up some kind of structure where it's going to publish things or do things immediately upon his death. And he did allude to this also in previous writings. I think it was in tweets. He said he's claimed that he has compromise or incriminating data, incriminating evidence on a whole bunch of powerful people. He says he has like 31 terabytes or something like that of, of compromise and that he would release it if he was killed. I believe, I believe he said this explicitly or alluded to this explicitly. And so now that he's killed and there are immediate things happening automatically that are bizarre, like the Q post from the Instagram account, people are like, is this, is this the dead man switch happening? And it's impossible to know at this stage, hopefully we'll get more information. And I'm going to be, I'm going to be covering the story. So subscribe to the channel. All right. And subscribe to the podcast because I'm going to be sticking with this one. I am absolutely fascinated by this one and I will keep you up to date on information as it comes out because this story is just too interesting. And People don't know yet. It's impossible to know yet what's going on, but it is certainly weird. And I mean, what is your theory for why a Q image would appear on his Instagram that immediately after he dies, his wife seems like a pretty chill woman. Like, I don't think she's going to be like playing weird games with his death. If he's actually dead, I, his wife does not seem like the kind of woman who's going to go and post a photo just to, to play head games with the world. She does not seem like that type that type of person. Yeah, maybe it was hacked or something like that, but the guy's a security expert. You think he's gonna, you, you know, you think he's got that bad of um, habits when it comes to password management? I, I don't know. I, I don't see his Instagram getting hacked, but again, it's not inconceivable. So something, something, something very, very weird is going on. And yeah, people are kind of wondering like if he has this 31 terabytes of, of compromise, how is he gonna publish it? Where is it gonna come out? I read an article recently, I think on Coindesk that said, it's very unlikely that he would be, you can't really publish that amount of data to the Ethereum blockchain, but there are maybe other ways that he could publish it. So just stay tuned. We don't really know what's going to go on, but um, yeah, of course it is also possible that he just killed himself. I will grant there is some non-zero probability, but the problem with that is the guy was such, he was, he had such a zest for life and he was on the run for so long. And he was so successful at it and he seemed like he was enjoying it that this just, it doesn't seem like he would just give up, especially because here's another important data point that I think very much speaks against the idea that he killed himself is that his extradition, I, I forgot this detail, sorry, the, 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 the supposed um, proximate cause of his killing himself was his extradition back to the US. So he's been wanted in the US for tax evasion and also for crypto scamming. He actually owned and sold like a bunch of shit coins. Uh, so it's kind of funny to see all the Bitcoin maximalists kind of nodding their head and saying RIP McAfee when this dude was actually a pretty notorious kind of shit coin peddler. In any event, he was he was wanted in the US for tax evasion and for crypto scams, and he was going to be extradited. This was approved um, in, a, in, a, in a decision between the United States and, and Spain. Spain was going to extradite him. Spain had him in a prison and was going to extradite him to the United States. This is supposedly why, well, that, that did happen. And, and the argument goes that that's why he killed himself because basically his, his time on the run was up, the jig was up, 
he was done for. And so he just offed himself. But the reason that doesn't make a lot of sense is that this extradition decision was open to appeal. He could have easily appealed it. And what um, Janice, his wife, said in uh, talking to journalists is that they were going to appeal it. And so it wasn't yet panic mode. It wasn't yet. His days were not numbered yet. He was not on the gallows, as it were. And so maybe, maybe, maybe if the jig was really up and it was clear his lawyers were telling him, dude, you're done, it's over. Then maybe, maybe someone like John would kill himself as a kind of defiant way of going out on his own terms. That would kind of make sense with his psyche and his character. But there's no way this guy who's been who's gone through extraordinary challenges and difficulties to to live life on the run and to escape power and to escape control, to to protect and express his life to the maximum. There's no way that this guy is going to just give up on life altogether when his legal options were not yet even fully exhausted. That that just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Now, here's another little thing to consider, which I haven't heard any journalists talk about yet. I haven't even heard this on Twitter. But what a lot of people don't understand is that countries like Spain are actually, they have weak legal systems. Countries like Spain and Italy, if you've never been there, you might not know that they're kind of like second world countries, especially in certain parts of the country. You know, the big cities, you know, feel very metropolitan. And of course, you know, there's lots of money and, and good police and all of that. But when you go into the other regions, when you go anywhere outside of the big cities, the legal infrastructure is very weak. It's very clientelistic. There's lots of bribes that go on. There's lots of weird local power networks that have never really been subjected fully to the rule of law, to the, to the kind of national, centralized, more effective you know, institutions of state capacity. So in countries like Spain and Italy, in large parts of, of the geography, the way that the legal system actually works is very, very, let's say fluid to use a very kind word. Um, lots of, lots of hands are greased, lots of little trades are made. And I haven't heard anyone make this argument, but it's very plausible to me that maybe he just had an enemy who found the right people in Spain, paid them a bit of money, and that enemy got access to the jail cell or some kind of hitman got access to the jail cell. That is not that implausible. That kind of stuff actually does not happen that much in the United States or the more advanced and um, rich and, and, and powerful Western countries. But in Spain and Italy, that kind of local power brokering and, and bribes and things like that happens quite a lot in, in large parts of the country. So I think it's very conceivable that if he that he he it, this is not necessarily like the U.S. federal government is sending in a hitman to kill him in his jail cell. That's what I think a lot of people are imagining. I think I think that's probably not super likely. It's definitely not inconceivable if you want to kind of put him in the same bucket as Epstein. I think it's not. To, I, I mean, I, I think it's not totally crazy or totally implausible. There's some non-zero probability that in fact the U.S. government had some kind of hand in it. Just like people believe the U.S. government had some kind of hand in uh, the the disappearance or the killing of, of Jeffrey Epstein, probably not some kind of official capacity, right? There's certainly very unlikely that the CIA has some kind of like covert operation to like go kill Epstein, go kill um, you know J John McAfee, but definitely possible that we're talking about high-ranking American people, American government people in those circles who do these types of things informally in a covert way because of their own kind of personal power investment. I'm not, I'm not saying that that happened. We have no positive evidence for that. I'm just saying it's not, it's not impossible. 
And when you look at the Epstein case in particular, I mean, it, it's just, you know, um, there's, let's just, we just have to leave it at that. It's a, there's a non-zero probability. You simply cannot exclude the possibility that we're talking about um, highly powerful people in the American political establishment who are uh, conducting operations that lead to the killing of very wanted people with dangerous compromise. Again, I'm not peddling this as a conspiracy theory. I'm not saying we know this. I'm not saying this is certain. Uh, we, we have very little positive evidence for this type of thing, but it's it's a non-zero probability, all right? What I think is a higher probability, though, is that someone like John McAfee just made a shit ton of enemies in his life, and he's in a Spanish prison, and just someone who he wronged in his life was like, oh, man, this is a good opportunity. I know a couple guys in Spain. I'm going to go you know, uh, pay a bribe to some local politician in Spain, get access to the prison, send in a hitman and have him offed. I think that's, again, I'm not peddling this as we don't know this. There's not any positive evidence. There's certainly no smoking gun for this, but it's not implausible. It's not totally implausible. And frankly, I think the idea that he killed himself under this context is highly implausible. Just when you look at the data points, when you look at his um, character and and you look at what the testimony of his wife, the testimony of his lawyer, and just how the guy lived his life so consistently for so long, I think it's just absolutely implausible that he would kill himself before the, all of the legal opportunities for um, saving himself were even exhausted. This guy does not give up very easily, right? And so, yeah, you have to weigh in this type of con in this type of situation where we as normal people don't have much information either way, right? We, I mean, frankly, I haven't. We none of us have seen the body, right? Do do we really know that he died? I mean, obviously you have to just look at all of the data points and you have to weigh them rationally. And um, frankly, we don't know a lot. So it's a highly uncertain situation. I would not peddle any particular perspective too strongly, but I will tell you personally from the way I see it um, and all of the data points available, I personally think the probability that someone killed him is higher than the probability that he killed himself. At, at this current juncture, given the available information, that is my perspective. And I will be covering the story more. So subscribe to the channel if you haven't already and subscribe to the Other Life podcast, wherever you get your podcasts, uh, because we will be following the story to the end. I find it absolutely fascinating. The Other Life podcast is a vitalist podcast. And so we are highly interested in anyone or any project that represents vitalism. And John McAfee is a vitalist to the core. So he is very much within our remit and we're very interested to see how the story unfolds. So I think I'm going to leave it at that for now. That's basically summarizes all the information I have found that I'm aware of. And that's my overall take on that. So absolutely interesting case. Um, just absolutely fascinating really. And so the final thing I want to leave you with, uh, the final topic I want to talk about today is the progress that I made in building the, the other life DAO, the decentralized autonomous organization version of the other life project. We have our own cryptocurrency on the Ethereum blockchain. It's an ERC 20 token called life. The, the ticker is money sign life. And I've been working on this for many months now, actually, I've been working with a company called rolled. You can go to tryroll.com and check them out. They're basically a startup that is, you know, they have, they have, uh, investors like, uh, Bology and, and many other people. They're one of the many companies that are really trying to uh, create structures for creators and internet communities to launch their own social tokens, essentially. And frankly, you know, I'm friends with a lot of Bitcoin maximalists. I know a lot of people think this kind of stuff is just a waste of time and that's fine. 
I'm even something of a Bitcoin maximalist in, in a limited way and that I, I do kind of think that in the very long run, Bitcoin will probably absorb all, most of the, if not all of the monetary premia. But I do think that there will be a large number of other tokens that just are used for basically accounting within communities and circulating and distributing value within communities. I, I think that absolutely is, is a viable use case. And there are lots of communities that are already doing this if you look at um, Trevor McFedries, for instance, the guy who invented Lil Michaela, the uh, AI influencer, this guy, Trevor McFedries, really, really smart dude, really cool dude. And, and just badass creative guy. Um, he has a, a, a tokenized community called friends with benefits and their, their token is uh, money signed FWB. And if you look at how they've done it, they've done it very well. They, that token has a rising value over time, gradually rising over time. The actual value of that token increases over time because the value of the community increases over time and you use the token to get into the community and to do things in the community and so it's just to me i really really like this and i'm very bullish on this simply because as a creator and someone who's blessed to have an audience and and people who you know follow my work and and, and like my ideas and just kind of vibe with the the themes that i'm interested in you know, people over the years have given me money for different things. People pay for the things that I make, whatever. Um, those people, you all, should have some kind of stake in what I'm doing. I don't want donations. This is why I closed down my Patreon a couple weeks ago. I want people who fuck with me to actually have some kind of role in what I'm building. And they and you should have some kind of stake in what I'm building. And launching a community token like the like the life token is basically a way of accounting for that. It's a way of distributing that. And so um, the update here is basically that, um, as you know, I closed down my Patreon. I closed down my Discord server. I have uh, a basic, simple group on Urbit, which is completely free to join if you're on Urbit. It's a, you know, it takes a little bit of um, technical jujitsu to get on there, but it's really not that hard at all. It takes just a couple minutes. I made a video. You don't need to write a single line of code or anything like that. It's just a little, little weird, a little technical, uh, but it's cool because you have your own identity that you own and. No one can take that from you. No one can censor you. You have you have access to this peer-to-peer -peer alternative internet, um, no matter what, so long as the network is up and running. And so I have a free group on there, and I'm now building out the the infrastructure around the life token. And so I've done a few things since we last talked to do this. First of all, um, I've made a multi-signature wallet and added other people in my community to it. So now we have a community treasury that holds most of the life token in circulation. So very roughly there's something, so there will only ever be 10 million life tokens ever. That's, that's baked into the contract. And then at the, and it's vests over time. So it's something like, you know, 200,000 life is distributed, um, every, every month or something like that. I forget, I forget what the intervals are exactly, but at the moment, there's only a current supply of about 4 million life. All right. And I put about 3 million of that into a multi-signature wallet. So the overwhelming majority of life that is currently available, it was just sitting in my account, but that's not good, right? Because I, I don't, I'm not the dictator. I shouldn't have access to that. And that's a problem in, in crypto because if um, I go and tell everyone about this life coin and then it becomes valuable, I could just cash it all out, screw everyone over and, and help myself, right? So that's a bad, you can't have that and you don't want to allow that. So I had to put all of the the overwhelming majority of the of the token into a multi-signature wallet and so at the moment we're starting off slow we're just kind of going, going one step at a time it only has two other people on it one is uh, kenny Rowe, who's been on the podcast before he's a kind of og kind of member of of my different community experiments he's also um a long time uh, urbit developer 
and he's a longtime crypto head. He was involved in MakerDAO from their very early days. Uh, just all around, you know, uh, very good character, smart guy. He under he he you know appreciates my content as has been kind of invested in my projects for a while, and uh, he's also you know very knowledgeable about crypto, and he's also um, a, a, an Urbit bull. So he was an excellent choice in my mind to have him on the multi-signature wallet. And then the second person is um, a guy named Henry Elder, who also is an OG kind of in my ecosystem. He's been a member of Indie Thinkers for a long time. He's a, uh, he's a PhD student in machine learning at, in Dublin. And so this is, you know, th they only know each other through me. So it's kind of a little geographically distributed, socially distributed, um, you know, little cluster of people. So that, that multi-signature wallet that holds something like 3 million life right now cannot do anything with that life unless uh, two of the three agree to do it. Okay, so I'm not, you know, uh, in p full personal control of of all of this life. I can't just run off with it, in other words. All right, so the other big bit of news is that we now have a market on Uniswap, which is pretty cool. Um, so if you, you could just Google for it on Uniswap, there's a life ETH pool. And so what this means, basically, for if you don't know anything about crypto or if you don't understand the stuff, it basically just means um, there's a pool. Uh, uh, think of it just like a basket or a bucket or something like that that holds a certain amount of life coins and then a certain amount of Ether, uh, the, 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 the native cryptocurrency of the Ethereum blockchain. And because those two sit in a pool and people can pull out one for the other, um, that they have technology that basically... Uh, extracts from that a, a market price, basically a market value for the life token. And at the moment, it's something like, so first I should say life is not a speculative asset. It's a utility token. It's just going to get you access to certain things. Like I'm going to uh, paywall some content and stuff like that. At the moment, it's just a community token. It does not have a financial speculative value, just being very clear about that. And so, but it is on Uniswap, which means by definition, it has, um, you can trade it for other things. And at the moment, the price of it is something like three cents um, if you translate it into USD. So it's pretty cool. It's pretty interesting, right? We've just started and uh, uh, the value of one of one life coin is uh, three cents. It's kind of interesting. Now there's not a ton of liquidity on there. So um, it's not like, it's not like we could cash out our three million life coin for three million times uh, three cents and get that amount of cash no, we could not do that. That, that. that amount of cash does not exist anywhere. There's not that much liquidity. Um, but as we do things with the token and as we make the token more useful, I believe that it's, well, I mean, I don't want to speculate or anything like that. I'm just, that's the idea. I'm going to, I'm going to, we're going to, now we can do cool things with this basically. And what I want to talk about briefly um, is just what I'm thinking about doing next with it all. So I think that what I'm personally most interested in at the moment, thinking about the opportunities for a tokenized community is I want to start, this is just a brainstorm. I'm, I'm not anywhere near doing this quite yet officially, but what I would like to do, and I, if I can secure the support of the community and, and the other people on the, on the multi-sig, um, I want to start funding other creators. And I think there are really interesting long-term opportunities in crypto to empower the most badass thinkers today who are kind of underpriced by the academic market. I think this is where my unique opportunity comes. I think this is a really re unique arbitrage that I'm uniquely well suited to exploit because as you all know from following my work for a while, this is kind of the essence of what I'm doing with my life in a way. I've made this big bold thesis on the on on essentially the idea that certain 
very independent thinkers who are a little too hot to handle for the institutions due to political correctness and, and various kind of institutional deformities. There's a certain type of really badass independent thinker who's extremely legit, extremely uh, valuable, capable of doing and executing an extraordinary body of work throughout their life that could make a long-term impact on on you know the long run of, of Western culture that is currently being just absolutely underpriced by the market. There's no place for them in academia. There's no place for them in traditional book publishing. There's just all, there is a set of independent geniuses out basically that are being significantly uh, underpaid and undervalued by current institutional configurations basically. And everything I'm doing, everything I'm building has been showing this to be true because now I'm doing courses with people like Nina Power and Michael Millerman who, you know, have a hard time in academia and, but with me, I'm making them like a lot of money, basically. Uh, and this is the proof of this thesis. This is the arbitrage that I'm executing. And so I, I have a lot of evidence to believe that I'm, I'm accurate in this wager that I've made. And um, so I think the most sensible kind of next step for really moving into the, 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 the crypto future is to start leveraging these technologies for this type of arbitrage. And the way that looks to me personally is that I think the the way that community tokens allow people to distribute value to the community and the way that things like NFTs allow people to kind of uh, commemorate or memorialize certain um, artifacts. These two things combined, I think are very, very powerful. And what I'm, what I'm imagining, for instance, just to give you a kind of look into the current, you know, diagram that I'm imagining is consider something like this. Consider if I go to someone like Nina Power or maybe Angela Nagel or Michael Millerman or whoever, maybe myself, maybe I'll start with myself as, as the first test run, who knows, but just someone who fits this mold, uh, someone who I think is very smart, very capable of doing something really impressive when it comes to, let's say, writing a book, um, writing their next book. And I go to them and I say, look, how about I will give you $5,000 advance or something like that, a, a, a nice amount, something that's actually you know pretty hard to get nowadays in, in even um, the well-to-do publishing world. I'll give you a, a generous advance, but it'll be in life, the life token, maybe, let's say. And what we'll do is you'll take that money to write a book, okay? And then I will publish the book. I will market it. I will publicize it through my media channels, which are growing. And we'll do a revenue share on that or whatever, just like you would do with a publishing company. But we'll also do some other unique things, like maybe you'll serialize the publication and it'll only be available in my community and you can only see it if you hold a certain amount of life, maybe, let's say. And, oh, and also when the book launches or when we initiate the project, we'll spin off a couple NFTs. Maybe we'll hire an illustrator or we'll hire an artist or something like that um, to make some fine art, turn it into NFTs, and then we'll auction those NFTs off. And if I am right that there is this kind of seriously underpriced intellectual talent floating around the world, then investors will want to buy those NFTs because they're likely to rise in value over time. Frankly, unlike a lot of the current kind of NFT hype, like I'm just going to say it, a lot of the stuff that's like being sold for millions of dollars with NFTs, like it's not good stuff. I mean, it's, it's like cheesy internet artists that are just close to crypto investors basically. And that's fine. Like I'm not hating on them. Like that's awesome. Uh, definitely good for you. Get the bag, secure the bag. But if you look at what's really going on, it's people who are crypto rich, basically 
spending huge sums of money on the early NFT artists just because they're the early NFT artists. Like a lot of the actual work is kind of like just corny, frankly. Uh, I don't want to sound like an elitist or judgmental or anything, but I just don't, that's just my judgment. That's my personal judgment. And so what hasn't happened yet in the crypto world is finding like geniuses outside of crypto and saying to them, hey, look, this is a very powerful vehicle that can allow you to get investors and be valued for, for what you're worth in advance, basically. And that is, I think, where an interesting kind of brokerage role comes in because people like Nina Power or Michael Millerman or Angela Nagel or, you know, my friends who are really just super smart people who can write amazing books and probably should be the some of the greatest intellectuals of our generation. These people, um, I, they're not, they don't know much about crypto. They're not already messing around with this stuff. They don't understand it. They're, they're not, they don't know the different tools. They don't understand the landscape and they're not involved with it. So there's a, this, there, this is a, a really important arbitrage. Someone is going to have to do this. It's, it's a, it's a really important next step to facilitate the, the greatest artists and, and intellectuals and bring them into this world. And so I'm blessed in that I'm, I'm kind of in both worlds. I understand it. I understand it both. And this is the, this is one of my larger long-term plays. So I think that I go to someone like Angela or Nina or whatever. And I basically say, look, I'll give you $5,000 advance on a book, go write it. Um, we'll, we'll spin off some kind of crypto based, um, uh, artifacts. We'll auction them. We'll get the right people involved, um, who see the value in what you're doing and who believe it will have appreciating value over the long term, And then I will just, you know, take a cut or like the life community will take a cut rather like, well, maybe we make a vault. And every time I fund an author to write a book, maybe one of the, one of the rare NFTs goes into the, the community treasury or something like that. And yeah, I think this is, a, like I said, I'm just brainstorming, but this is where I'm currently at. This is what I'm currently thinking about because I think it's just a massive opportunity. And I don't really think anyone is as well positioned as I am to figure it out. And so, yeah, I would love if anyone out there is thinking about this or thinks this is cool. I need your help. Like this is the other really big idea behind doing the life DAO is I'm, I'm tired of doing everything alone. Like I can only do so much. I have a lot of good ideas, I think. And I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm good executor. Like I follow through on things and I'm building these, this growing media operation and a growing business with indiethinkers.org. But like I'm maxed out. I can only do so much. So in an ideal world, what really happens with this podcast and with the community and, and my newsletter is like I can help coordinate things. I can provide some kind of intellectual leadership in, in developing certain ideas and visions and agendas. But at the end of the day, like I need other people to do stuff. And that's what's so cool about the life token. And this is why I'm bullish on community tokens is that now we have this uh, pool of, of money that I can basically use to give to people to incentivize them to do things. And so, yeah, if you think any of this is cool, or if you see where I'm going with this, or you want to contribute, if you have any kind of expertise that can contribute, please let me know, you know, join the group on Urbit, or at least just sign up to the email list, stay in touch, or, you know, you can text me. Um, I'd love to hear from you. You can text me at 303-529-2047. And uh, yeah, just stay, stay in touch because I'm going to be figuring out these things you know, um, over, over the coming months. So I think honestly, I'm in, I'm into crypto for the long term. Like I'm not interested in short-term hustles or like some crazy provocative stunt where we try to make like a million dollars or something like to me, that's not, that's not interesting. That's not where the real value is. I'm super bullish on crypto in the long run. And so what I want to do is slowly and patiently build structures that 
are basically going to make me and my friends and the other life community and the greatest kind of independent intellectuals of our generation financially successful and secure over the next five years, 10 years, 20 years. That's kind of where my, that's where my heart is. That's what I think is most meaningfully attractive and, and, and motivating to me. So everything I'm doing with the life token and with, um, NFTs and, and with this kind of vision and with going onto Urbit, for instance, all of these, uh, are, are converging around that kind of vision or motivation. So yeah, we need more people who want to do that kind of thing, uh, get involved, sign up to the email list at otherlife.co and I'll be updating everyone on that. So that's pretty much an update of where we're at. I'll be, I'll be posting more details about all, about all of that soon. So the Urbit group address, someone asks, it's, um, it's kind of hard to say people aren't, aren't going to understand the words. If I say them, it's Hattrick's last stud forward slash other life. Um, with a dash between Hattricks and Lastud and a dash between other and life. Uh, sorry, I don't, that, that's not going to sound good to people listening on the podcast, but just subscribe to the newsletter. If, if in doubt, subscribe to the newsletter at otherlife.co and I will periodically be uh, publishing stuff about this. So, all right, that's all I got for today. Thank you for hanging out, everyone. Please subscribe to the YouTube channel, subscribe to the podcast, Other Life, wherever you find your podcasts. And thanks for coming out. As always, I will see you soon. We got some live, we got some interviews coming up that I'm going to be conducting in Austin. They're going to be, they're going to be good. So stay tuned. Don't miss it. And uh, yeah, I'll be back on the stream sometime sooner or later. So enjoy the rest of your weekend and all right, take it easy.